0: So you're a musician who's comfortable working in multiple genres of sound. Could separate classical music, noise rock, improvisation, jazz. You do a lot of things. Did it only, Did you start out with this uh, curiosity in all these different styles of music, or were, did you were you rooted more in like did, were you classically trained I think and then I, eventually you know, branched started out? Off
1: or? like every you know, listening to pop music and rock mm-hmm. music, and then then kind of. Um, interested in blues music, actually Chicago-style blues, uh, for a long time, and then uh, I kind of then started listening to, uh, in high school, uh, getting into um, um, improvisational types of music, um, especially groups from here like that were connected with the um, AACM, Art Ensemble of Chicago, Sun Ra, people like that. Um, that's kind of how I really it was through sort of um, free jazz that I got into
0: contemporary music. Okay, all right. So it's always been an element of, of improvisation. Yeah, I started to, as an improviser. You started as an improviser. That's a, it's really great because it is rare. I mean, maybe it's becoming less rare, but I see, and maybe this is a question for you, I'm seeing more classically trained musicians becoming really strong improvisers mm-hmm. than historically. I think it's it's becoming something that's happening more. Do you see that as well, as someone who's been doing this for, for 40 years? Yeah,
1: no, everybody, now it's like, it, when I started, it was like very few people were doing both things, and now most of the young cats are good at doing everything. Yeah,
0: and I think they help each other out. I think they yeah. become a better reader, become a better interpreter of classical works, through, through composed right. works, being a strong... I felt like there
1: was a, a, a there was some sort of connection in the ether. Uh, I didn't see that much difference between, certain, you know, between like a Boulez piece and maybe an Archie Shep on this night type of thing or a... Yeah, right. You know, or um, certain Stockhausen pieces would remind me of certain, uh, like some of the music of Cecil Taylor. There was just like this thing in the air. Yeah, for sure. In terms of um, everybody was sort of, you know, doing like interested in similar sonic possibilities.
0: Edgar Varez's piece, Ionization, for all percussion, when I first heard that, I thought it was improvised. I had no idea. It sounded Well, different. like when I was a
1: kid, I you know, I'd go to the record stores, you know, and I would, I was avid, you know, any kind of music, and I sometimes would just like buy records because of the names and things like, you know, Archie Shep, Pharoah Saunders, uh, Sun Ra, all those names, like were, you know, just the names interested me because, you know, Totally. What does Sun Ross sunlight. Like? Yeah, totally. Like Pharaoh, Pharaoh Sanders. Wow. wow. That's He's gotta a be Pharaoh? Pretty, that's got to be pretty that's
0: hip.
1: <laughs> you know, wow. And then, you know, I see a record like, um, I saw this Boulez record once when I was in high school. It said Improvisation Sir Malamar. So I thought it was impro- improvised music. And I listened to it, and it was kind of like, it w- in a way, it was kind of the way I like to improvise. And then somebody told me, oh, that's all written out. Wow. So then that's how I sort of started to get wanted to get into learning how to play that music yeah
0: yeah so you were born in brooklyn correct
1: yeah but you didn't grow up in new york i moved to um hollywood like when i was three
0: okay um how did you find the percussion how was that what was your, your musical household or was there a, no a, a, no no i was completely
1: came from a non-musical household interesting uh, but you know, as young, I started you know getting into it by, as I said, listening to you know people like uh, Mitch Mitchell or Ginger Baker, and, and then people like Sam Below and Francis um, uh, Sam Lay, and Buddy Miles, people like that. You know, blues drummers, uh, Mick Fleetwood, and then from there to jazz drummers, and Fantastic. and then you know, um, I would hear people like um, Barry Altschul, who I had a, a huge setup it wasn't just drum set it was like all kinds of percussion and i realized uh you know and 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 i then i would see pieces like by stockhausen or or people that also use similar you know huge percussion setups yeah and exploring colors and things like that so it was it all seemed like a natural progression
0: was there any memorable i don't know experience or particularly maybe a live concert that kind of set you on the path to want to devote your life to doing this? Uh,
1: yeah, there
0: um... I mean, and there Chick, must have been multiple, but was there any in, in particular, like, that really stood Oh, the out? first
1: time I saw Chick Corea. Okay. He had a band called Circle, with Anthony Braxton, Barry Altschul, and Dave Holland. And when I first saw them, they were completely playing free. No charts, they didn't play tunes, um, you know, they just completely played free and it was the first time I ever saw a kind of uh, virtuoso saxophonist, Braxton, you know, was, you know, this would have been 69 or 68, you know, he was like at his form, top of his form, and, and I have to say that that was like a, that seeing that at the lighthouse, and I was too young to even go in, I saw it through the window. And, uh, yeah. and it totally uh, changed my life forever.
0: you went to California Institute of the Arts. Mm-hmm. Is that where you met James Tenney? Mm-hmm. So James Tenney was the composer who performed the second piece that that William played tonight. Can you maybe talk a little bit about your experience working with James Tenney? What did you study with him? I'm sure a lot of things but anything in particular When well, anyway, I first
1: went to Arts, I was mainly studying contemporary classical music and uh, Jim had a group out there called Tone Roads, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, he conducted a, a, one, a percussion concert, of music of Cage and Lou Harrison and Edgar Vares and Henry Cowell. And uh, so I started working with Jim as a conductor.
0: Oh, interesting. you know, And
1: then also I started to play his music, and then I moved to Toronto and finished school at York, and Jim moved there, I, became his, I, I ended up being his roommate.
0: Oh, wow. And
1: so I ended up working with Jim quite a bit. And he was, he was the, the one roommate. that really encouraged me to start
0: mm-hmm. to... Is he, uh, the reason they're laughing, because I asked, how is he as a roommate? Is he okay? Was he okay as a roommate? I mean, was I okay <laughs> as a roommate? <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, so you you finished at York, but but James came with you? So I basically
1: you know? got kicked out of CalArts. I mean, I was going, but I wasn't um, taking the t- proper classes to graduate, and then after a while I stopped paying tuition, and I was just playing in the percussion ensemble, and... Eventually,
0: so they kicked you off and They thing said of that I was
1: on, you know I got called into the office and they said I was on private property and I owed him all this money And, <laughs> and so that was that and then I kind of joined the band. I joined like a band at that time So uh, you Mystic
0: joined Oingo
1: Boingo, right? Oingo go cool And so I dropped out of college to be in this band for a while
0: cool Awesome, and they were awesome.
1: also interested in the same kind of things. I was interested in at the time you know everything from like World music to Duke Ellington to Stefan Grappelli to Albert Eiler to uh, Prokofiev.
0: Sure, wow, a lot of influences. And were you playing drum set with them or percussion? At that time I was the drummer. Doing drum set, very cool, excellent. Um, I wouldn't mind for a minute talking about uh, your relationship with Roscoe Mitchell. This piece that you performed tonight that was really beautiful, you also performed it at the MCA in 2015
1: there was a, um, a an exhibition at the at that museum of i guess of art for you know things going on in the 60s from that period and one of the things they did a whole two days of stuff of Roscoe Mitchell's and so Roscoe put together a I'd been playing with Roscoe already for a while and Roscoe put together a band with like Taishan Sori and um, Craig Taborn myself Hugh Wranglin, I guess Tani Tabal mm-hmm. um and um, it was like a large band, and we did two kinds of concerts. One concert on his percussion setup that he used to use in the art ensemble, and then another concert of um, new pieces that he was writing for this thing. And that's where the um, Bells for the South Side came out. We made a record. We also made a record there as well for ECM.
0: Now, this piece that you played tonight, did you perform this exact piece in a trio setting? Or did no, no, this, okay.
1: this piece is different. This is Bells for New Orleans. Bells for New Orleans, So this was okay. kind of written uh, after the, the um, hurricane. Got it, uh, okay. So sort of a, in honor, you, you know, it was in recognition
0: oh, of that. Katrina. And okay. I
1: recorded this, this was the first thing I recorded for Roscoe uh, on a rogue art.
0: Oh, but when okay. we came here,
1: um, all the music was this music for the bells for the South Side. God. It. So it was all more related to the, his experiences here in Chicago.
0: So I misspoke earlier. I announced this piece as bells for the bells for the South Side. This right. is bells.
1: F- this is bells for New Orleans. For New
0: Orleans. Sorry about that. Okay. But this piece was written for me. Excellent. Um, I also saw that you recorded a large group piece with Roscoe at Mills.
1: Last year we recorded. You know he's been. Um, doing a really interesting thing where he, he was playing in a trio with Craig Taborn and this drummer from England it was a trio I can't remember the name of the drummer and they were improvisations and then what he did was he had the transcript he had the improvisations transcribed and then from the transcription of those improvisations he then orchestrated them for an orchestra
0: Wow okay
1: so it was a really interesting way of working.
0: Uh, he was conducting? Was he also no, performing? No,
1: Roscoe was playing. Uh, there was another conductor Okay. In, in the ensemble. But he brought in people like myself and some other people. Besides all the written material, there were areas to improvise in.
0: Okay. How large was the ensemble, roughly? 23 instruments. 23, wow. And that all got recorded. And that recording is available.
1: That recording is, it just came out. Just
0: came out. And it's a little feel. Is it Roscoe Mitchell? Yeah.
1: And then we did a, a year before that, we did a, 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 another orchestra recording uh, of the same idea, taking uh, transcriptions of this trio with Craig Taborn, and Roscoe, and a drummer from England whose name I can't remember. But he actually played on that. When we played at MCA, that drummer came out. So there was actually four drummers. There was me, Tyshawn, the drummer from England, and Tani Tabal.
0: Wow. Fantastic. Um, moving on, you're really well known for the realization of other people's works, but you haven't really composed your own stuff so much. No, I'm not a composer at all. Why not? What is That's it? That's my name. It's Why n- not? <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Why not? Do you need another theater? I, I was can... asking you another Guillermo question. Guillermo Porqué, no? Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, you know, I think just playing music was hard enough. For me. Well, you don't make it sound. And then composing uh, just seemed like a whole other thing that I'd leave that up to, you know, to them. I thought composing was like a sacred area that I didn't want to, like, get involved in. I liked being the muse.
0: Any influences outside of the world of sound? For example, visual art, sculpture, painting. Uh, Yeah, people
1: like um, Philip Gustin, Rothko, um, Rauschenberg. A lot of those guys, um, with, uh, you know, I loved a lot of that art, and a lot of the composers I worked with, like people like Earl Brown, who was into Calder, Feldman was into Augustine and Absolutely. to Rothko, yeah. uh, Cage was into all kinds of things, Feldman was also into rugs. so, you know, for me to, when I was learning their music and working with those composers, it was important to know the artwork that was influencing them, because they were, they were more in, influenced by what was going on in the in the art world than they were sometimes even big in time, the music world. Big
0: time, In fact, I was reading a Feldman book, and he talks about that the only audience for their concerts were painters and dancers, like in the early days. Well, a lot of
1: times, like back in, that, in the 70s, like when I played with Steve Reich, uh, we played in art galleries. We didn't oh. play in normal music venues. Oh, uh, yeah,
0: right, right. Fantastic. Maybe one or two more questions, and I'll open it up to the audience, see if they have any... But I wanted to ask you a question about the Bay Area. And I wanted to ask you how you feel it's changed since you first moved there to now. And as someone who's also teaches at Mills College, would you tell your students now that it's a creative place to try to build something now? Because I mean, last time I was there, I, mean, I love the city, but it seems to be getting so outrageously expensive out there. How does one move to a city like that I mean, and try to...
1: I think people... Um- you know people you know if they're dedicated enough you know you you uh and you want to somehow be an artist whether it's you know visual music that you you make it happen yeah somehow you even figure if you're it out um, uh, doing it against gigantic odds i mean it's always been like that yeah yeah so you know it's just i i for me it's like there's it's still a creative scene there's still people figure out places to play there's house got there's what definitely ways of
0: ways of making of it making, making
1: work. Making it work, you just have to, you know, figure it out. All right. But um, I don't discourage them at all. If that's, you know, for me, you know, I've been all over the world. I still get homes. You know, I still want to go back. Yeah. Right. To California. Yeah. Jump in that ocean, right? Like maybe tomorrow. <laughs>
0: What's coming up uh, next? What do you do when you when you, uh, when you head next back week, home tomorrow? At the tomorrow? end of
1: next week, I, I'm in an Italian pop music band with this singer named Mike Patton, who uh, was uh, mainly a rock singer. I think he plays in a band called Faith No More. And I was in a band with him for 10 years called Mr. Bungle. Right. And he now has an Italian pop music project with 12 musicians and then a 12-piece orchestra. Great. So right. we're going to Italy to do Italian pop music
0: next Fantastic. Week. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Any questions from the audience for William? Yes.
2: I have a two-parter. Um, early on in the interview, you mentioned a uh, composed record uh, by someone named Boulez. Pierre
1: Boulez, Pierre Boulez, who's a French composer okay. that came sort of out of that Schoenberg school of music, the 12-tone. Uh, he became like a very important figure in European avant-garde new music. Uh, and he did this big orchestra piece called Don't Pli. Within it, there were two short movements mm-hmm called Improvisations Through May May After the Poet. And, you know, his music was totally written out, but when you listen to his music, like the Marteau, Sens Matre and stuff like that, it, to me, does sound spontaneous. It almost sounds improvised. Yeah, absolutely. And so he was doing something that, when I was in high school, caught my ear. And then when I saw that it was all composed, I was like, that even interested me more.
0: Interesting, very cool. Was there a second part yeah, to so the... so you had said that record
2: um, sounded like the way you like to improvise. Yeah. And as someone who really uh, adores the way you improvise, could you... It's hard to put into words and almost an impossible question, but
1: what is the way you like to improvise? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm kind of into sound, you know, like I'm more, i kind of into, t- into timbre into sound, as just sound, um, and the way it's or- organized and orchestrated in terms of... Um, timbre is very important to me and i thought i think that both people in the in the improvised music world and people coming out of the new music world were also very interested in just pure sound and the way it could be organized in different ways and um but you know as a kid i was really totally taken by improvised music and then you know i would hear buy a record like i don't know if you know archie shepp's on this night Mm -hmm. But the first piece on that record was with a soprano. And it's pretty much a through-composed piece. And he's using sort of um, an atonal, 12-tone language. So um, I was always interested in music that was um, kind of pointillistic, maybe didn't have a tonal center, that sometimes didn't have like a, a a recurring rhythm or a steady pulse. And I felt I found that in both, the, I could find that the kind of music, whether I was listening to Cecil Taylor or Archie Shep or, or um, like the early um, Circle records, as sure. well as I could find that similar idea of abstract expressionism in, in sound with people like John Cage or more. Absolutely. I, I, even though they were coming from completely different backgrounds.
0: No, absolutely. And what's really exciting to me is I was introduced to the work of Anthony Braxton, Great American composer, multi readist visionary, from Chicago. From Chicago. Um, and I heard Webern later, but after exploring the works of Webern, I heard I heard some of his ideas and Braxton's music. Right. So well, this I is mean, this cross-
1: again, you know, I got to know Braxton really well. The, 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 <laughs> the great thing for me was being a you know connected with Mills College. I got to meet a lot of my heroes that I when I was you know that when I was in high school, I, th- I thought I would never get to play with Anthony Braxton. I would never get to work with Roscoe Mitchell or Cecil Taylor. And I ended up getting to work with those people in later Fantastic. on. Fantastic, yeah. But, um, uh, you know, like Braxton, you know, you talk to him, like his fa- one of his favorite composers is, is Stockhausen. Correct, absolutely. And he was always into Stockhausen as much as he was into Charlie Parker. Yep. I mean, they were both important figures for him. Absolutely, absolutely. So for me, you know, it was all about sound, about music, and about this About thing. ideas, really. And, uh, and it seemed like everybody was sort of in some weird way on the same page. I don't yeah. know oh. why I thought that. But, <laughs> but as I said, also, you know, I just would buy records, you know, without knowing what I was going to get. And it would be sometimes just like, as the Boulez record had the word improvisation in it, so I, that's why I bought that record. I mean, I bought as I said, Archie Shep records, just because I thought Archie Shep was the coolest name
0: it's a, ever. It's one of the cool, I mean, maybe maybe Thelonious Monk is a cool Thelonious name. Thelonious Monk, another an incredible I mean, name, yeah. I, would, I would find jazz I thought jazz these records. guys had
1: like a publicist or something like that, <laughs> <laughs> you <know? laughs> You couldn't come up with a better name, and and any, and any music, that, or better
0: music. Pretty much. Any other questions for, for William? Yes. Yes, I would like you to talk a little bit about your collaboration with pianist Chris Brown, how it came about and what it has brought to you as a musician.
1: Um, Chris Brown, um, I was introduced to Chris Brown by this uh, saxophone reed player named Peter Kuhn, um, who was living on the west, had been living in New York and had worked with... um, a lot of free improvisers, and he knew Chris from, from Santa Cruz, U.C. Santa Cruz, the university there, and he hook, he hooked me up like in 1981 with Chris doing an improv. And at that time, Chris was was really into building these electroacoustic instruments, uh, but he was also totally into improvising. So it was through Peter that I first met Peter, and we started improvising together. And uh, and then um, Larry Oakes had seen me where I had done a, I'd been touring with a composer named. Iannis Zanakis, like in 1981 or 82, Larry Oakes from the Rova Saxophone Quartet saw me play, and then he wanted to do something with me because he was interested in that. And, um, and I suggested that, well, maybe if we form this group, let's get Chris because he was into using, doing, making his own electronics, writing his own software, building his own instruments, and also as a killer improviser on the pianist, on, as a piano player. And so um, absolutely so we formed this little group called Room, and then later on we got hooked up with Glenn Spearman and we had a, a double trio. So I bet Chris is one of my I've been working with Chris since 1981. And we even played here a few years ago at the constellation with a German saxophonist named Frank Gretkowski.
0: Oh right, yeah. Very cool. Any other questions? Um, just wondering if you if you ever look for uh, unique acoustic spaces and do they inspire you, the sound of the space? And I guess I'm asking that because like in San Francisco on the other side of the Golden Gate Bridge, there's, you know, the hills overlooking the Pacific, they have these old, like uh, Spanish, I mean, uh, yeah, civil, um, The um,
1: Like missile silos yeah, and things yeah, like yeah.
0: that. Yeah, the war, you know. Yeah, they the built um,
1: <coughs> these, you know, during World War II, they built like all these bunkers and yeah. stuff up there. Yeah. to protect us from, you know, from the other, right. whatever that was, you know, and uh, I have done concerts there. I just recently um, played in a giant abandoned water tank, metal water tank in Colorado, um, that the sound artist had found. Maybe 100 feet high, um, giant steel, big, huge water tank.
0: And Was it filled with water?
1: Uh, you know. <laughs> it was never filled with water because they had built it on a mound of dirt that they realized if they had filled it up with water it would have crashed down so they abandoned it like 40 years ago so they built
0: this structure and never used it they
1: never used it and then it ended up being a hangout for teenagers and eventually a sound artist found it and so they invited me to do a similar concert uh inside the tank and they also had a professional recording studio outside and they also put up a Meyer sound system on the hills around it, so people could either hear the concert in the tank or um, outside. And I also worked with a lot of local drummers, and we did a piece by Pauline Oliveros so where we actually uh, me and six other drummers uh, played the tank. Oh, cool! Uh, 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 doing this sort of single roll stroke med- meditation. So I, I I do like playing in different spaces and. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, for the Agnes Martin Show at the Guggenheim Museum, uh, John Zorn created a, a series of pieces for percussion, harp, and electronics that we did in honor of Agnes Martin. And in this really incredible, at the bottom, I don't know if you've been to the Guggenheim, but it kind of wraps around. Mm-hmm. And then and you're on the floor, and the, we had the music on the bottom, and it just sort of mm-hmm. spread out. And, and John did a whole concert based on the sound and the acoustic of that room. Um, Uh, doing a concert there and I've done similar concerts like at the Metropolitan Mm -hmm. Museum of Art at the Louvre Um, uh, John did a concert here actually at the Chicago Art Institute where he would play in different galleries again uh, with his favorite paintings
0: very cool
1: cool. so yes um, I'm always interested in that I just did a thing um, at the Sutro baths in San Francisco I don't know if you know these there used to be a giant outdoor swimming pool right on the ocean that got destroyed during the earthquake, but now it's sort of abandoned quarries and stuff like that. And I did a piece for 90 drummers there by John Luther Adams outdoors. And um, I'm doing another thing with this um, um, First Nations composer is writing a piece for percussion to be played in this
0: outdoor park. So cool, fantastic, Great! wonderful. And then just, I don't know if you knew about two or three years ago, there was a uh, tribute done to Pierre Boulez
1: uh, here. Uh, oh. Chicago Symphony Orchestra did. It was really, really great. I mean, you know, one of the first Vares records I ever re- bought was Arcana with um, George Salty and the Chicago Symphony. I mean, it was, you know, made in the 50s. Yeah. yeah. You know, when no one was playing Vares. And, oh, really? you know, Chicago Symphony, this we're, we're doing it. Yeah. So So, um, yeah, I have a bunch of Vares records done, uh, recorded by the Chicago Symphony. Uh, Chicago has always been like a hub for, I think, for new music. There was also a composer that wrote a lot of pe- some pieces for me, uh, named Ralph Shapey, mm-hmm. who used to live is from Chicago and taught at the University of Chicago. He was not only a great composer, but he was a very important person as a conductor and and presenting a lot of new music to Chicago audiences. And he was a really interesting man. And Did so I worked with him. Like
0: circular loops or something like or loops, something with the word loops in it.
1: You mean Ralph's? Yeah. He wrote all kinds of pieces. But he wrote a trio for me, and this trio I used to have in San Francisco, and he brought us out to the University of Chicago. We premiered his, this trio that he had written for us. And, but I'd worked with him before, too, doing other pieces. And I, oh, as again, again, he put out, he also recorded a lot of this new music. So you could find it in the 60s. You could find these recordings that he made as a conductor conducting, I guess, musicians from around here. But I felt like he was another really kind of a key figure in the new music scene here in Chicago.
0: more questions? Yeah. Right.
2: Mike. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I'm really happy you played that James Tenney piece. I, I really love that. And I first heard it on that really great record that you put out. Um, I forget who, someone on the East Coast, where it came in that um, amazing wooden box. You know oh, that? yeah.
1: Um, <clears throat> uh, I'd never done a, a solo, even though all these composers over the years have written pieces for me. Um, I never did a solo record under my own name, and it was always like, you know, John you know, Willie plays John Cage, or you right, know, right, right. Lou Harrison, or Roscoe Mitchell, or Brad, you know, it was always like me playing other people's music, and it would always, the record would always be under their names. But then some woman from uh, Boston called me up and said, she would really like to do a record with, that would be under my name, and what pieces would I like to do, and blah oh, blah great. blah. And I said, you know, well, okay, as long as I don't have to record, you know, maybe, can I use recordings I did when I was in college, or, you know, can I give you cassettes, and things like that, and and, uh, and then, you know, she, and the only piece that we actually recorded was that Jim Tenney piece.
2: Oh, wow. Yeah, I'd I, I, never heard of Jim Tenney before then, and I got really obsessed with that piece, and then it set me down the rabbit hole with Jim mm-hmm. Tenney, and I learned so much more about him, and then I really wanted to perform that piece, and I was having a hard time on the come down and mm-hmm. then I read something uh, where he mentioned that the, everyone gets it wrong uh, because they, they don't uh, pace the, the come down well and I was yeah, wondering come down, how sorry. you deal with that one because it's easy to like slowly build but then after you build like Well that, I have a
1: stopwatch
2: Okay. <laughs>
1: and, and I kind of use the stopwatch as where I'm going to peak and then using it also how to go down
0: Okay.
1: Um, so yeah I use a stopwatch for it and you know I've done it for a while so yeah that is the hardest part i've all you know the thing about that piece is that it wasn't written for tam tam. Jim Tenney wrote a series of pieces that he called postcard pieces and they were pieces that he would write on a postcard for a friend, a performer, and then he would just mail it, put it in the mail and mail it to them. so this piece that he 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 did was written for my teacher, and it was called. Oh we didn't have the, the name of this piece is called Never Having Written a Note for Percussion. So this was his first percussion piece and all it is is a I don't know if you know, you know, I'm a, now we're going to get technical. <laughs> it's a crescendo. I don't know if you know what that looks like in, in sheet music, but it, you know, it's like a sideways V that goes like, you know, like that and then a decrescendo.
0: Don't forget the fermata, though, in the middle. And then
1: there's, like, a a fermata (laughs) in the middle and then a whole note with a a roll (laughs) sign over it. So all he meant was he he wrote a piece, a long roll that starts really quiet, gets really loud, and then gets real quiet again. So it was sort of my my idea just to do it on Tam Tam. But I've done this piece, um, like, I did it with a rock band. I did it with Sonic Youth. We did it with a whole band doing it. Oh, yeah. So it could be done... on a drum. It could, I did it with, like a, with, a, you know, with a, mm-hmm. basically a noise band. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it can be done on any instrument. Right. It's
2: just, I think on the postcard you kind of drew...
1: On, on the postcard all it is is a crescendo and a yeah, decrescendo yeah. with a roll, with a whole note, a roll in the middle with a fermata that says very could you long.
0: maybe play it one more time for everybody? <laughs> <laughs> we've, got, but, we've all got time, right? Maybe a but, lot longer version of it.
1: But and he wrote a series of pieces. He wrote one for solo violin, he wrote one for Buell I don't know if you guys, you know, for the jazz guys here, you know, Buell was like one of the first bass players that ever played with Cecil Taylor, but he was also the principal bass player of the Boston Symphony. Uh, he wrote a piece called Beast for him. Um, he wrote one for Simone Forte, a dance piece. He, he wrote a harp one. <coughs> and so he wrote, and he just made these on postcards, and then he would mail them. And then a little publishing company eventually published, made a, you know, duplicated them sure, the postcards. as postcards. Yeah. Um, the other, only difference, some of them, the tam-tam piece and the violin piece are what he calls koans. Yeah. And uh, koan is a Buddhist term, meaning like it's a, it's a question without an answer. And so this was part of that series. You know, like this, you know... One hand, you know, the, the you know, the sound of one hand shaking, sound, right. or something. You know, I don't know. You know, yeah. it's, it's some. I'm not a uh, scholar, or, and, and I'm certainly not a Buddhist, but you know, it has something to. You know, does it, it does not make sense? You you ponder a question that has no answer, and by pondering it for a long time, you achieve some sort of um, uh, understanding, nirvana. You you achieve something. I don't know what, but you know, it's something. I'm still trying to figure you out what I mean. What I mean. Yeah. You know what I mean.